Well, it's a real joy and honor and privilege to be with you. And I appreciate what uh, your pastor said so much. He's a dear friend and colleague in the ministry and uh, just thrilled at how the Lord is using him here and other places. Uh, one of the other places the Lord uses him is at our home church. My wife Karen is with me over here. And our home church is Central Baptist Church on the west side of Manhattan. And uh, it's our privilege to have Edwin every so often come on a fairly regular basis and preach there. And he just really uh, is very warmly received. The people just love to hear your pastor preach. And so we thank you for lending him to us every so often. And so it's a real honor and privilege to be here with you today and to look into God's Word, because what I have to say is of very little consequence. It's what God has to say in His Word that makes it worth anything, right? Amen? So we want to look into God's Word to see what it has to say to us this morning. I remember a pastor several years ago asked me if I would counsel a young man who was having trouble in his marriage. And I'll anticipate what you're going to do. Okay, there you go. <laughs> and he, uh, uh, as I said, was having difficulty in his marriage. Uh, uh, I told the pastor up front, as I tell anybody that asks me for counseling, that that's not one of the gifts God has given me. Uh, I'm not a counselor, but if somebody thinks I can be of help, I'll be happy to try. Uh, this guy had been a, a professional athlete, and because I had, had wrestled and played football in college, I thought, well, maybe at least you wouldn't be intimidated by him. So we met for, for quite a number of, of months. And I would have occasion every so often to talk to his wife. I would encounter her in church or uh, on the street or something, and I would, not on the depth that I spoke with him, but every once in a while I would engage her in a conversation about the issue, the situation. Uh, he believed she was having an affair, and turned out that was certainly the case. Of course, he himself was far from innocent in this, and he had contributed quite a bit of uh, the problem to their marriage. Anyway, I remember w vividly one conversation I had with her in church. It was uh, just a spontaneous thing, and uh, we were talking a little bit about the state of their marriage. And I remember something she said to me. We had just discovered again that it was indeed true that she was having an affair with someone and whatever. And, and I was talking to her about that, and she said to me something that I never forgot. It was not unusual uh, or startling. In fact, it's a very common phrase. You probably used it too. She looked at me and she said, Mark, I have a right to be happy too. And I said, well, what about your husband? What about your marriage? Well, Mark, I have a right to be happy too. What about your children? What about your home? Well, Mark, I have a right to be happy too. What about God? What does God think about this? Well, Mark, I have a right to be happy, too. You see, for her, her right to what she perceived to be happiness trumped all other responsibilities she had. And the one thing that mattered to her was that she could do what she wanted to make herself happy. You ever been there? Well, you know, that little episode demonstrates so vividly the distinction between doing things God's way and doing things the worldly way. Keeping it real, we like to say, well, one of our pastors is always saying that, you know, I'm just keeping it real. <clears throat> well, we could keep it real in one of two ways. 
We can keep it real the earthly way, the worldly way, or we can keep it real God's way. You know, we've been, uh, uh, we're about, what, about a month into the, to the new year. You want to calculate how many decisions you think you've had to make just so far in this year? You're making decisions right now. You made a decision whether you were going to come to church today. You're making a decision whether you're going to listen to what this guy has to say or not right now. We're making all kinds of decisions. Uh, we're going to be confronted all through this year with a parade of choices and options and, and temptations. How are you making your decisions? What criteria are you using to make a choice between two options? You know, the Bible paints two very different pictures of reality. It paints a picture of doing it real or keeping it real the way the world does it and keeping it real the way the Lord wants us to do it. There are many places in the Bible we can look at to see this sharp distinction between these two realities, the world's reality and God's reality. But let's look at one in particular. Louisa read it earlier. But if you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 3 or look at the um, overhead over here, the, the, the DVD, and look at the first two verses. This is from Colossians chapter 3, the first two verses. Listen to what Paul says here. Since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And there's the core of the matter right there. Those are the two options we have. We can set our minds on earthly things, or we can set our minds on things above. And every time you make a decision, brother or sister, every single time you're moving in one of those two directions. You're either keeping it real the earthly way, or you're keeping it real God's way. I want to take a few moments and look at what or how the Bible describes each of these ways of keeping it real. So that we can be crystal clear when we come to make our choices every day, that we can be crystal clear on what our options truly are. So let's consider for a few moments, first of all, keeping it real the earthly way. Now what Paul does here is he explains in a foundational way, what the world believes, why they believe what they do, and the kinds of behavior that, that those values of the world produce. And there's a verse here in this section of Colossians that captures that very well, very vividly. Look across the page, if you would, at chapter 2, and look at verse 8. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul says there, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. I want you to see a couple things there. The first thing I want you to see is that the world is not passive. Do you know the world's trying to capture you? The world's trying to make a trophy out of you? And who's the one who sets up? The values of this world. Satan himself. And Satan wants to make you a trophy. He wants to influence what you do. Now hear me well. There's something I want to emphasize. 
If you belong to Jesus Christ, that means that you know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin. He took the punishment you deserved, and he paid for that sin, and he rose from the dead, victorious over death and sin. If you've asked Jesus to apply that to your life, acknowledge your need for that, and say, Jesus, uh, take the work you did on the cross and apply it to me. If you've done that, you belong to him. He's purchased you with his blood. And you can belong to no one else. Satan doesn't own you. He can't own you. It's impossible. But Satan is there all the time tempting you to do what he wants you to do in any given situation. And he wants to brag about it. He wants to say, see how often you do what I want you to do instead of what God wants you to do. You see, the world is not passive. The world is actively trying to reach out and grab you and make you its victim. And Paul makes that crystal clear here. And then he tells us the nature of the values that we find in the world's way of keeping it real. And uh, it's very tempting. It looks very good. But how does Paul describe it? He says it's hollow, it's devoid of purpose, and it's empty. You see, the world apparently wants to respond to whatever you think you need. But when you act in that way, and you try to grab a hold of it and hold it, you realize it's empty. It's meaningless. It's made out of superficial stuff. What does it say here? It's made out of, how does Paul put it? Human traditions and worldly principles. What are human traditions? You know, all of us come from different cultural backgrounds. And uh, culture is a good thing, because God created it. Every culture at its base reflects something in the image of God, because God created all those cultures. But like everything else in this world, it's been corrupted by sin. And so our cultures sometimes say, this is the way we're supposed to behave in this situation. And really, it goes contrary to what the Lord wants. And yet so often, we act the way our peers think we should act. You know, we like to think of ourselves as independent. And yet, how often do we actually do what others expect us to do? Our peers and so on. That's a human tradition, and that's one of the basis of the way the world thinks about life. And then Paul says, uh, worldly principles, worldly principles. Thinking what other people think you should think. There's a little verse in the book of Isaiah that sheds light on what it means to live according to worldly principles. Let me read it to you. You don't need to turn there. It's in Isaiah chapter 11. It's actually only a part of a verse. Uh, Isaiah 11, the end of verse 3. Listen to what the prophet's saying. Now, he's talking about the Messiah. And, of course, the Messiah we know to be Jesus Christ. So listen to what he says. He, that is the Messiah, or Christ, will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. Now think about that. Aren't you glad that when Christ looks at you, he doesn't base his evaluation on what you look like or what he hears about you? But we do that, don't we? Oh, we, we say, oh, brother, sister, they ignored me today. Or they looked at me and they looked like a dirty look. Or that person hasn't spoken to me in three weeks. And we, we look at a person and we make an evaluation so often on people based on what they look like or what they're doing. 
And brothers and sisters, that is a very dangerous thing to do, especially in a multicultural church like yours. Because the very same behavior can come from very different motivations. And you might be interpreting certain behaviors that in one set of circumstances might be accurate, but in this set of circumstances is totally opposite. See, God doesn't evaluate us on the basis of what he sees. He goes to the inside, to our hearts. Nor does he go by what he hears. One of the great curses of the church from its very earliest days until the present is gossip and slander. How often do we listen to what other people say about sister so-and-so or brother so-and-so or whatever, or deacon or elder or pastor or whatever, and we evaluate people on the basis of what we hear. And sometimes what we hear is far from the truth. In fact, quite often it is. You see, God doesn't do that. But the world does. The world evaluates people on the basis of what they see with their eyes and on the basis of what they hear with their ears. But God doesn't. Then Paul goes on here to give us a list of what keeping it real the world's way produces. Look at it. uh, It's quite a lengthy list. Verses 5 through 10. Of chapter 3. Listen to what Paul says. This is the product of keeping a real worldly way, the earthly way. Paul says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. That's what worldly wisdom produces. Now that's a long list. Let me see if I can crunch it down into three phrases. The world says, keep it real by feeding your need. Feed the need, right? I'm only human. And if I see something I want, I take it. If I feel like doing something, do it. That's what the world says, doesn't it? Feed your need. After all, we're only human. How often have we said that as an excuse for our sin? Or maybe how about this one? Out of my way. I'm coming through. And if you're in my way, I'm going to push you aside. Doesn't the world value that? Get out of my This is my... That's the third thing. This is my stuff. This is my stuff. I deserve this. You see, that's the, world th- the way the world thinks. That, in a nutshell, is keeping it real the earthly way. And the Bible paints that picture very vividly of what it means to live life, to make your decisions based on that reality. How different that is from the way the Bible paints keeping it real the heavenly way. Let's take a few moments and consider what that means. Look back at the first two verses of chapter 3. Paul says, Since then you have been raised with Christ... Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly 
things. Why is it so important that we set our minds on things above? Well, Paul tells us right there. What does he say? That's where Christ is. That's where Christ reigns. That's where he has his authority. And what does it say? Paul says, we have been raised with him. We're identified with Christ. Literally in the Greek, it means we've been co-raised with Jesus. And that's why it's so important to live above. But it's also important we understand what Paul means here when he talks about living life above. You know, we tend to think of a place above up there in the cloud somewhere. That's really not what Paul's talking about here. What he's describing is the the presence and the authority of Jesus Christ. You see, God isn't confined by space or time. God created space and time. God doesn't do one thing and then another and another in a sequence like you and I do. That whole concept, it's beyond our ability to grasp, but that all is part of his creation. It doesn't govern him, nor does space. Uh, We say God is omnipresent. That doesn't mean a part of him is over here and a part of him is in the bank of the sanctuary and a part of him is on Flatbush Avenue or whatever. No, God is entirely present everywhere. Space doesn't confine him. Again, our minds can't wrap around that. But the importance of that is to realize that every single moment of every single day, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is right there with you. He's your constant companion. And so when he says, live life above, Paul's not talking about, we need to reference some rule book that exists in heaven somewhere, as opposed to the rule books down here on earth. Rather, he's saying, Jesus says to you individually, personally, come and follow me. In this situation, do what I want you to do. And it's a personal invitation, because he's right there with you. And you know what happens when we refuse to do that? Who do we turn our backs on? We turn our backs on Christ himself. You see, that's the choice. It's not between two sets of rules. It's who are we going to follow. And for the Christian to live above means to accept the invitation that Jesus gives us to follow him. And every moment of every day, Jesus is right with you. And every decision you make, brother or sister, it's either follow him or turn your back on Christ. And then Paul gives us a list of all the behaviors that are produced by living life above. It's quite a different kind of list than what we just saw in living life the worldly way. Look at verses 12 through 14 of chapter 3. Paul says there, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, and you read your Bible, those are very familiar words. And yet how rare they are among God's people. We know what we're supposed to be, but how often we fail to be what we're supposed to be. He said, the world tells us, feed your need. Do whatever you feel like doing. You're only human. But what does God say? 
God says, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. The world says, get out of my way. I'm coming through. But God says, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. We say, the world says, this is my stuff. This is mine. And what does God say? Over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And the word for love there is the word agape, which means that it's the kind of love that only gives. There's no thought about what it receives in return. How different, brothers and sisters, how different are these two concepts of reality? Keeping it real the world's way or keeping it real Christ's way? Those are the stakes. That's the choice we make over and over and over again throughout this year and the next and on and on. There's only one thing left for us to consider. Which side are we going to take? What are we going to do? Which side are we going to act on? Look back at verse 1 of chapter 3. Paul says, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. That word set, that little word set in that verse is a very interesting one in the Greek. It literally means to be on a quest or to seek after. Now, why is that important? Because it's telling us that this idea of living life or keeping it real the, the godly way is not a one-time decision. You know, we can uh, come to Christ and that is a one-time decision. When you come to Christ, that's forever. Nothing can alter that. But every day, every what you're going to do this afternoon, what you're going to have for lunch, you know, that's especially true for me. Your pastor just came off a fast. Well, I haven't fasted in quite a while. But, you know, even what I choose to eat is the worldly way or God's way. You see, it's a whole succession of choices that we make. And that's why it's so important to see what Paul is getting at here. Both realities are constantly confronting me with a choice, with options. And it's up to me to choose. Because every time I make a decision, every time you make a decision, if you belong to him, you're deciding, this time I'm going to do it God's way, or this time I'm going to do it the world's way. There's, you can't take a vacation from it, brothers and sisters. It's there. And you have to choose one or the other. What are you choosing? What did you choose today? Some of you choose, chose to come to church over whatever else you could have been doing. But some of you have chosen, well, I'm going to think about what I'm going to have for lunch. Who's going to win the game with the Jets and the Colts, you know, all that. I know it's fighting. We're fighting that. You see, every time we make a decision, it's between heaven and earth. What are you doing? What criteria are you using to make those decisions? Now, there's something else we need to note here. We need to understand that there are some Christians that will tell us that if you just make the right decisions, if you, when you have that choice, if you choose to follow Christ, you know what? You're going to get everything you want anyway. God's promised that to you. He's saying, just do what I want you to do, and you'll get all the other stuff too. There'll be people that will tell you that, but they're telling you a lie. 
Because the Bible doesn't teach that. You know, if you're living for Christ, if you're keeping it real the heavenly way, you're living in opposition to the world. You, you know the story of the salmon, how they have to go back to where they spawned, you know, when they, uh, whatever, they have to f- swim upstream. I've seen pictures of that. You know, where the salmon are actually fighting to go against the current. If you're a Christian, brothers and sisters, that's the way you need to live. Not flowing with the current, that's the easy way, but flowing against the current or swimming against the current. And you're going to be bloodied and beaten and battered because you're a Christian. The world isn't going to honor that decision you're making. The world isn't going to give you all its stuff because you're doing what it wants you to do. No, you're not doing what it, what it wants you to do. You're following Christ. And you're turning your back on the world. And the world is going to say there's consequences to that. But brothers and sisters, let me ask you a question. What would you rather do? Would you rather appear before the judgment seat of Christ, battered and bloodied and bruised, and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your rest? Or would you rather live life the way the world says it should be lived? Oh, there's pleasure. There's pleasure in living the world's way. But it's a pleasure that never satisfies. You know that. You know, you know satisfying doesn't come from doing what the flesh wants. Uh, the, the world is painting all kinds of pictures for us. But it's never fulfilling. There's no meaning or purpose in life. What do you want, brothers and sisters? Do you want to do what the Lord wants you to do? Do you want to keep it real, the heavenly way, or keep it real, the world's way? Those are the choices. For people of my generation, and uh, I was born in 1950. Yeah, that's a long time ago. Yeah, <laughs> I'll be, uh, I'm not 60 yet, I'll be 60 in September. But for people of my generation, uh, the, the backdrop of our lives was the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States. You know, the, the uh, communist government of the Soviet Union, I'm Russian, so I come from a Slavic background, but that's different than the Soviet Union, of course, was a, was a kind of a government. And the backdrop of that Cold War was the backdrop of my life. I remember as a kid uh, watching the news and uh, the United States just tested a one zillion megaton hydrogen bomb. And then the next day the Soviet Union just tested a zillion and one megaton hydrogen bomb and so on. And there were times you thought the whole world was going to blow up. That's why it was so extraordinary when several years ago all of that collapsed. Something I'd lived with my entire life all of a sudden disappeared, almost overnight. It seemed like the Soviet Union and the Iron Curtain, that string of Eastern European countries that was a buffer between the Soviet Union and Western Europe, all of that collapsed. You know one of the heroes of that story, one of the people who helped to make that happen was someone you probably never heard of. His name is Yosef Tzahn, and he was a pastor in the nation of Romania in Eastern Europe. And Pastor Zahn became quite a well-known preacher in Romania. He was uh, uh, intensely committed to sharing the gospel with his nation. 
And his word went out in the churches and they would tape his sermons and people all across the country of, of Romania heard uh, Pastor Zahn's sermons. And of course that attracted the attention of the, of the government, the communist government. And they felt their plan was if they could turn Pastor Zahn to their way of thinking and have him reject Christ, they would win a, a, a great victory that would turn the nation back to them. And so they picked up Pastor Zahn one day in 1974, took him to the police station, and he was interrogated. And interrogated and interrogated. They, they desperately wanted to turn his thinking around to their way of doing things. But he refused. Well, they let him go home. But they came from the next day, and the next day after that, and the day after that. And they interrogated Pastor Zahn for up to 10 hours a day, five days a week, for six whole months. And he never turned away from Christ. One day he heard this from one of his um, interrogators. He said this to one of his interrogators. He said it to them. They didn't say it to him. Listen to what it says. It's very simple but very profound. He said to one of his interrogators, Your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Think about that. You're threatening to kill me. That's all you can do. But you see, if you do that, I have the victory. That's better for me, and it's certainly going to be better for my message. Because people are going to associate it with what you've done to me. Well, brothers and sisters, I don't think anybody here, I could be wrong, but I don't think anybody here is ever going to face that kind of decision between life and death, where it means if you follow Christ, you're liable to be executed. And yet every single day, you make the same kind of decision. Are you going to follow Christ? Or are you going to follow the world? Are you going to keep it real the world's way? Or are you going to keep it real God's way? There's something the great missionary Jim Elliott said. He maybe heard this. He said, that He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Well, where are you, brother or sister? How have you been making your decisions so far this year? Because you have a choice. You can live life the way the world wants you to live it, give Satan those little victories that he can brag about, or you can live life the way your Savior wants you to live it. We're not, as Christians, looking at life from a a right-now point of view. We're not existentialists where what's important is what's happening right now. We look at things from an eternal point of view. And when we see things from that vantage point, all of a sudden what seems important, what seems necessary, changes radically. What are you doing, brother or sister? Are you living? Are you keeping it real the world's way? Or are you keeping it real God's way? You're going to make that choice today. And tomorrow, every day this year, over and over and over again, until either Christ comes or you go to him, what will you do? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, Paul's letter to the Colossian Christians and, and how he lays it out for us so, so vividly, Lord, that we can make a choice. We have to make a choice. We can either live life the way the world wants us to live, 
or live life the way you want us to live, Lord. I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters here that we might right now determine in our hearts that when we have these decisions to make, and they're so often all throughout the day, that we might make the decision that would honor you, that we might not turn our backs on you, Lord, but that we might obey you, that when you beckon us to follow you, that we might in fact do that, Lord. And so live life, keeping it real, the way you want us to. Strengthen us through your Holy Spirit as we seek to live that life today, this week, throughout this year, and until you come. For we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Amen.